Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Dorian Linsky. On this week's edition, policing is under the spotlight around the world. In the US, there are calls to defund or even disband the police. What needs to happen in the UK and what does this moment look like from inside the world of policing? Former Metropolitan Police Officer turned commentator on policing Peter Kirkham joins us on today's show. Plus, China has just imposed draconian new laws on Hong Kong. What does social control mean in the digital age? And can Britain do anything about it? And what would you spend £500 on? With the government considering handing out vouchers to every adult in the country, is this the right way to boost the economy? All this and more in today's book. Hello, welcome back to the weekly edition of The Bunker. Just a quick reminder, we've got another live stream with Romaniacs this Thursday at 8pm, and it's exclusive to Patreon backers of either show. If you're not registered already, search Patreon Bunker Podcast and find out how. It should be fun. Now let's meet today's panel. Welcome back to broadcaster, Romaniacs regular, and author of the forthcoming book, Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse, Nina Schick. Hi, Nina, how are you? Hi, good. 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 So over the weekend, Rishi Sunak announced a £1.57 billion bailout fund for the arts. That's rescue grants available for museums, galleries, theatres, music venues, cinemas, and so on. Sunak and Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden say this has been in the pipeline for weeks. But do you think it would have happened without the high-profile campaigning from, from the arts sector? Because it's been all over the news for the last fortnight. Well, it's undoubtedly the campaign has put pressure on the government, but I think it would have been very silly of the government not to think about bailing out the UK creative sector, even without this campaign, given just how much it is worth to the UK economy. It's, it's, I mean, it's worth over £111 billion a year. And of course, this bailout fund is so welcome because um, a lot of these kind of independent music venues, up to kind of 93% of them could be potentially closing their doors without this bailout fund. So you could actually make the argument that it's actually not enough. Um, if you look at what some other G7 countries have done, for example, France, they have a 7 billion euro bailout fund. You could actually say that even though this is the largest one-off investment into the arts, um, more will need to be done. And I think that Generally, I would say that the government, and especially number 11, um, not number 10, number 11 has had quite a good response to the pandemic. And I think this is another welcome step, although it might even be too little. Are you enjoying Rishi Sunak's personal branding with the little, the little cheerful Rishi signature, as if he's sort of running his own uh, mini government inside a government? Yeah, I mean, I think he's probably one of the only politicians who's come out well in the pandemic. So let's see what happens between number 10 and number 11, because I think the inhabitant of number 10 might you know, be jealously watching how well Sunak has been coming out um, in this pandemic while he's, whilst he's been kind of nowhere to be seen. Also with us is former diplomat and Foreign and Commonwealth Office mover and shaker Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Did you take advantage of the pub over the weekend? Uh, well, tempted as I was, I, I didn't. It, the weather wasn't great, and somehow being inside a small and stuffy room wasn't quite what I had in mind. I mean, it's a big step, and hopefully cases won't spike as a result. But if they did, do you think the government would uh, close pubs again? Or would that seem like an admission of error, like any bit of the lockdown that has to be reversed is just going to seem like a bad call on their part? Well, it, it, it's tough. And, and whilst, you know, I think the 
there's much to criticise about the government's uh, handling. It is fair to say that it, it's very tough to to sort of come up with any seemingly backtrack on 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 the kind of reopening. But you know, the Leicester example shows that I think what we're going to see is these sort of local lockdowns. So if there's a spike of cases in a particular area, then they'll probably lock down those areas, and that that's how they'll have to manage it and it'll become the norm right but you don't see any return to a national one well uh, obviously i can't predict if we're going to have a huge sort of second wave uh, you have to you have to Arthur. that's why you're here okay you have, see, you have to see the future and confidently tell us what will happen uh, take it from me there'll be no <laughs> second wave it's official <laughs> Um, our guest today served in the Metropolitan Police for over 21 years, both in uniform and CID, at all ranks up to DCI. He currently works as a policing services consultant and policing commentator. It's Peter Kirkham. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm OK, thank you. Um, what sort, If we did have to have a lockdown again, whether national or just local, what sort of policing challenge will that pose now that people have sort of tasted freedom and will be pretty unhappy about uh, any loss of that? I think it will um, provide the same challenges that we've seen right from the very beginning. There are 122,000 police officers in this country. There are 60 million population plus. You don't get 60 million people to do what 122,000 cops tell them. And that's without the cops doing everything else they have to do, uh, which they haven't got time for anyway at the moment. So this isn't a policing issue. This is a government leadership. This is a health uh, issue and the police have got a sort of should have a walk on par in backing up the health agencies when they if and when they need it the fact that it was uh, has been portrayed as a policing issue right from the start is uh, just yet another example of just how shambolic this government has been with dealing with this crisis well, acting Lib Dem leader Ed Davey reported Nigel Farage to Kent Police for making a trip to the pub uh, less than two weeks after he'd returned from America. So technically, he should still have been in self-isolation. Is, so are you saying that this sort of thing just shouldn't be a police matter? Or, you know, should they get involved? Well, frankly, Ed Davey needs to think about the amount of police time and effort he's wasting, uh, even if the police do nothing about his allegation. Because at very best, you're talking about something he's going to get a minor fine for. This is totally disproportionate. And to be honest, it's something that really annoys me about all sorts of subjects that as soon as they see something that they think they can report to the police, politicians, campaigners and others are jumping up and down, reporting things to the police and expecting the police to get involved. We've gone stupid. It's just nonsense, and the politicians should damn well know better, to be honest. First, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis has generated a tidal wave of anger at police forces worldwide, including here in Britain. What do the events of the past few weeks mean for policing? And with the biggest recession in centuries about to hit the UK, are plans for 20,000 new police officers going to be put on hold? Um, Peter, there's some figures from from. Gov.uk show that 27 to 18, black people were over three times as likely to be arrested as white people. 2018 to 2019, there were four stop and searches for every 1,000 white people and 38 for every 1,000 black people. And the recent data from the Met shows that BAME people were nearly 50% more likely to be arrested for breaching coronavirus laws. Uh, You're obviously a robust defender of police officers, um, but don't critics have the, the data on their side? 
I criticise police when police need to be criticised as well. Just this week, I've been getting uh, flamed on Twitter uh, for not supporting police about a couple of things. The bottom line, though, is that the stats are shot through with inaccuracy and error. The stats are the stats, but like all stats, they are the start of a questioning process to find out what's behind them, whereas for the last 40 years, they've been portrayed as the absolute truth and no one can question anything about it. We've had the same stale discussion based on the same inaccurate and error-prone statistics for 40 years and we need to move on. The errors come primarily from the fact of what the baseline population is. So if you're going to say how many white people, how many black people compared to the baseline population have been stopped and searched and then compare those two proportions, you need to ask yourself what's the baseline population. The baseline population is actually the census figures from 2011. So A, it's well out of date, and B, who's not on the census, and C, are there people in those categories uh, that are disproportionately black or Asian or any other group? And so the, the census figures are nonsense. Who lives in the city of Westminster that is stopped and searched in the city of Westminster? Hardly anybody. They're, they're people that travel in from elsewhere. So what on earth is the census figure of the city of West, Westminster? How is that any use whatsoever as a baseline figure? There are other sources of error as well. Um, but what we need to be using is the street population. And even the critics of the police have acknowledged that. They've come up with a load of nonsensical reasons why uh, that doesn't matter. But the reality is they accept that that is an issue. Um, and even if we say, yes, there's some disproportionality, there's then the immediate jump. Oh, that's because of racist cops. Why? There's lots of other potential explanations for it. The most obvious one is disproportionate involvement in the things that stop and search is used for. And again, I'll just use one example. Stop and search is primarily a tactic used to deal with street crime, street crime, street drug dealing, street disorder. So that involves who's on the streets and where does that sort of thing happen? Well, we all know it happens in city centres and town centres. It doesn't happen in Chipping Norton. It happens in central London. Who's involved? Young males almost exclusively. And so you need to ask yourself, who are those young males that live in inner cities and town centres? Are they disproportionately black and minority ethnic? Yes, they are. So they're going to be disproportionately involved in the thing that the stop and search tactic is used to deal with. So there's bound to be some disproportionality there anyway. Well, over the weekend, as you know, two black athletes, Bianca Williams and Ricardo Dos Santos, were stopped by the police, removed from their car, handcuffed, while with their three-month-old son. Uh, and basically any, any sort of black driver in London uh, will have been pulled over more than their, their white friends. Uh, this incident has obviously sort of blown up and Bianca Williams threatening, you know, has been speaking to lawyers. Um, what do you think of the way that the police have handled this incident and is it representative? All I know about the incident is a short piece of, I don't know, 15 seconds of film, 20 seconds of film. Um, and what uh, Williams has stated, uh, but not substantiated in any way. I also know what the police have said in an official statement, knowing how the systems work. There's plainly a lot more known than has been talked about. 
and senior officers have looked at it and said it appears to be uh, legitimate and lawful. doesn't answer the question of could we have done it better, how we did it, as opposed to what we did, and that's a major issue, that we don't differentiate between the two. Um, the police tend to focus and the IOPC tend to focus on the lawfulness, and we tend not to have them look at the how it's done and frequently the how it's done is what the issue is, how the communication is, um, what the explanations are, what the approach and the body language of the officers is. From the very short clip that I've seen, it appears a perfectly legitimate approach to a stop for weapons. In the clip, you hear the officer say it's section one of PACE, uh, and it's been uh, stated that it's weapons they were looking for. If you think someone has got weapons, you do not stay and have a 10-minute conversation with them, persuading them to get out of the car and comply with what you're asking them to do. Because if you do, next thing, they pull out a gun, it's happened to me. They pull out a knife, it's happened to me. And you end up with a very, very serious problem to deal with. And they end up in a damn sight more trouble than they started off in. So you gain physical control as quickly as possible, especially if there's any resistance. And we know that the car didn't stop when it was first indicated to do so. So we've got a situation here, which, as with many, people have taken up as a cause when on the face of what is there, it appears to be okay. We can talk about whether they could have been a bit nicer or this, that and the other. And people have been going on about the mail officer's hat. But we can talk about that, the how, but the what, it appears to me and it appears to any other police officer, I suspect, as a fairly standard way of starting a stop for weapons when you've not had immediate pulling over of the vehicle. Well, I mean, I mean, obviously, one of the reasons it's got so much attention is because of, uh, of, the, of the broader context. Um, the, the Met was deemed institutionally racist uh, by the McPherson Inquiry in 1999. Uh, Stephen Lawrence's father, Neville Lawrence, says the police have fallen way, way short in implementing the recommendations. And two former senior Met officers, Patricia Gallen and Victor Elisa, have also said you know, racism remains a problem. You served in, in the Met during that period. What changes were made after McPherson that you do think have made a difference? And what changes remain to be made? Uh, in, in rooting out institutional racism? Well, we first of all need to understand what we mean by institutional racism. The first point to note is it's not institutionalised racism, which is very different. Institutionalised, so when something is institutionalised, it means there are so many people within that organisation that uh, show that characteristic that it has become the norm for the organisation. It's interesting to note that even McPherson didn't find any actual overt personal malicious racism when he did his inquiry, the only thing he found was one relatively minor and explicable uh, misuse of um, a word by an officer giving evidence. He didn't find anything else. So it's definitely not institutionalised racism. What it is is institutional racism, which is unknowing, unwitting, structural sort of stuff. And I mentioned earlier on, um, yes, there's probably... Uh, well, there undoubtedly will be aspects of institutional racism in the police service. There can't not be. There will be in every organisation, though. Everybody looks at this, points at the police and even points at the Met Police and says, oh, it's just them. It's not just them. It's any organisation which is founded, created uh, and largely staffed by an overwhelming majority ethnicity. 
The same applies with gender. The same applies with any other factor. So it's inevitable that any organisation put put together by white males, uh, which the police service 200 years ago primarily was, um, it's inevitable that it will be biased towards the interests of white males. Nobody puts an organisation together with the interests of others and not yourself in mind. That's just human nature. Black Lives Matter has popularised the slogan, and it starts in America, uh, defund the police. Uh, I'm sure you're not a fan. But, you know, it means rethinking harm reduction in society rather than just taking money away from the police. It's looking at, obviously, how various jobs that that the police do some of those might be broken off and be done better by specialists, leaving the police to focus on on serious crime. So in the the idea, if not the slogan, do you think there is something in that and asking the police to do less? There's certainly something in that uh, idea. But what's erroneous about that idea is that the police have ever been funded to do the work, such as dealing with those with mental illnesses and such like, Uh, dealing with missing young people, missing from home and such like, um, that the police have ever been funded to do that. They are things that over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years have steadily stopped being being done by the organisations and agencies that should be doing it. So the NHS in the the case of mental health, um, by social services and children's services in the case of young people. And they have just stopped doing it. They've defunded it themselves. So we've had missing young people that are reported to the police and the police know that if they don't do it, nobody else will. So the police have said, OK, we'll do it. We're not funded to do it. It's stuff that we're not really set up to do. We're not trained to do it. We're not really equipped to do it. Mental health is a classic example. And and everybody's uh, just, well, no one else is going to do it. And so the police have helped themselves to it. So, yeah. Police officers for years have been saying that those things should be taken away from them. They shouldn't be being expected to do things just because of the utter failure of other agencies to do what they're supposed to be doing. And so you'll not get any resistance from the police if that is taken away. We urgently need an emergency response to mental health crisis, mental health paramedics, mental health ambulances and a mental health A&E. We urgently need it. We've known that for years. When I was at Brixton in the 90s, I informally arranged something similar around the A&E side of things with the local mental health facility. It lasted for about a year, and then the NHS management changed, and it all died a death, and I don't think it's been seen since. So, yeah, take the work away, but don't take the funding away because the police have never had any funding to do it in the first place. Take the work away and let the police get on with the policing that they can't do because they're doing other stuff that is now prioritised because the police prioritise uh, vulnerability, threat and risk uh, over uh, ordinary police work. You're not going to get your burglary reported if there's a missing kid. They'll all be looking for the missing kid. And quite rightly, if that's the two choices. But what I'm saying is it shouldn't be the two choices. The police should be getting on with policing and other agencies should be getting on with what they're doing and the money isn't there in the police. If you take the money away from the police, uh, policing will suffer. Arthur, in America, uh, we've seen some much more militarised police forces, armoured vehicles, SWAT teams. Obviously, guns have a huge presence in American life that they don't have here. So when we're talking about issues such as, you know, the, the defund the police campaign or just talking about policing generally, 
is the situation in America so fundamentally different to Britain that it's actually not useful to sort of import uh, import these sort of concepts? Um, well, I think if you just look at what's happened in America, you know, there has been this militarization, and that's been quite a strange phenomenon. Uh, with the the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, has sort of uh, been running these programs for, for for years, although they've been expanded under President Trump, where effectively the sort of old uh, military kit and things that you don't really consider as part of normal policing equipment, armored vehicles, heavy weapons, that kind of stuff, is then fed into police forces. And the argument has been made by police forces that they need this in an environment where you've got gang violence and, you know, much more serious crime. Uh, I mean, I've done some reading on this. It, it does seem that if you look at, yes, there's a lot of guns in American society, uh, but there isn't evidence that the the homicides are being uh, carried out by people, you know, with, with uh, heavy weapons or kind of assault rifles or that kind of thing. And so the idea that the police, uh, on the other hand, also need to kind of armor up in a in a bigger way it doesn't seem to add up but i think what's happened is this program has become a sort of self-sustaining dynamic and it's useful to the defense department to get rid of kit that they don't need and it's probably attractive to some police forces to feel that they have a, a kind of heavier heavier level of armor now comparing that to the situation here in the uk clearly i mean the, the prevalence of guns in ordinary life and the lethality of uh, a lot of uh, sort of criminal activity in America is very, very different here in terms of the homicide level. So I think it's a hard comparison to make. I wanted to ask Peter, given that, you know, my interest is very much on the kind of information ecosystem and perhaps becoming increasingly dangerous. And one place where, well, one group of people who this has been fantastic for criminals and terrorists. So I just wanted to ask, Peter, about how the police force is able to deal with the increasingly difficult challenges of online terrorism and um, uh, cyber criminal criminality, and and how he imagines the modern police force can deal with these challenges, and if they're fit for purpose. The more serious cyber crime, such as terrorism and child sexual exploitation, and and, and things like that. Uh, they're not badly resourced. They've been around for some time, uh, and there are uh, there's good expertise and there's good experience of dealing with cybercrime. Obviously, the IT keeps changing, and so the expertise needs to keep catching up. Uh, but broadly speaking, they're not bad on that. Where they're not good at all, and it's simply because they haven't got the resources to put in it, uh, put into it, is high volume cybercrime. Things like consumer fraud. Uh, things like the stalking and the harassment and the abusing sort of stuff that goes on over social media. There just isn't the capacity to do it. And the government know that because when it was made a when it became apparent for consumer fraud, uh, they didn't give the police lots more resources to, to buy more computer specialists, to buy more uh, police officers to put into fraud units and, and such like. Uh, what they did was they invented a whole new thing based around a call center called action fraud, which, to be frank, is a complete and utter waste of time. Um, all it does is it gathers information in. It doesn't even do that well. And then there's a mountain, an absolute deluge of information 
that somehow a small police unit in the city of London police is meant to pick the bones out of and identify uh, trends and, and, and patterns and things that are worthy of uh, going on. And then they are expected to persuade forces that don't have any fraud resources to do something about it, and they can't actually make them. So the whole, that side of things is dire. Um, but we've seen just this week, we've seen the National Crime Agency uh, leading for the UK, uh, along with many other forces, uh, on the breaking of the cyber communication, or sorry, the encrypted communication system, uh, with the assistance of uh, Dutch and French uh, and other European forces. Um, that is brilliant. That sort of stuff is going on, but relatively small numbers of cases so in that way, that, that illustrates how good it can be, uh, but it also illustrates the fact that it wasn't computer specialists and people with iPads kicking doors in and nicking people at 7 o'clock in the morning. It was cops. So you need cops as well as the IT specialists. Finally, Peter, I wanted to ask if there's um, going to be 20,000 new officers promised. Firstly, what do you, do you think that is literally going to be the case? Um, and where should that manpower be going? Uh, no, I don't think it's going to happen. It's certainly not going to happen by 2023, which is the promise, uh, because in practical terms, uh, if you're going to increase the headcount of police officers, uh, you need not only to recruit that additional headcount, you need to recruit um, uh, officers to replace those that whilst you're doing that increase are retiring and leaving anyway. And we have got loads of officers leaving in mid-service now, which never used to happen, certainly not to the extent it's anywhere near the extent it's happening now, um, because of the demoralisation of the police service, the bad-mouthing of the police service by everybody. Um, they've gone to drive trains. You get more money, you get far better work-life balance, and you get far, far, far less stress. And so you've, you've got this situation where they're going to need to recruit about forty or 45,000 police officers. Well, the money's not good. It's not bad, but it's not good. Like I said, everybody knows that everything you do, you cannot do wrong for doing, do right for doing wrong. You, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And you are criticised every day. And you are stereotyped every day. And there is anti-police prejudice everywhere. It was led by, from the top by Theresa May for 10 years. That has changed with Johnson's government, uh, which is promising. Um, but no, it's not going to happen by 2023. Is it going to happen at all? Well, we've already started hearing, oh, well, this might all have to be put on hold because we're going to need lots of money to recover from the COVID crisis. And so, no, I don't think it ever will. If they do come back, they need to come back into neighbourhood policing. Local policing is what we really have as the foundation of our policing model in this country. Uh, it's the foundation on which all the specialisms are built. And again, I've heard tell of, you know, when they were talking about, oh, where are we going to put all these? Loads are going to go to the National Crime Agency. The National Crime Agency is great, but it's not local policing. And th th that's not where they came from. They're not going to do anything to do with street crime. We need officers in communities. That is policing by consent. And if you do not replace the officers in communi communities, you are taking a big step away from policing cons from consent. And we're heading towards America, to be frank. Events are worsening in Hong Kong, with Beijing imposing a sweeping and repressive national security law on the semi-autonomous region. 
among other things, it criminalises inciting hatred of the government, recategorises protest tactics such as damaging public transport as terrorism offences, and allows suspects to be tried on the mainland. Already, books have been removed from libraries, activists have been falling silent for fear of arrest, and people are worried about what their children are saying at home, let alone in the streets. The British government plans to offer nearly 3 million Hong Kong citizens a BNO passport, which is a travel document without citizenship but with a potential route to citizenship, a move which has not exactly delighted the Chinese Communist Party. Arthur, former governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton, described the new law as Orwellian. The AFP news agency called it the most radical shift in how Hong Kong is run since it was handed back to China by Britain in 1997. What does the law do in brief? And do you think those are fair assessments? Well, I think they are fair assessments. So very briefly, what it does is it takes control of security uh, and hands that back to China. So all of the powers over um, arrest, over aspects of the judiciary, over all kinds of surveillance and other security measures have been handed back to Beijing if the uh, the sort of issue under question relates to these sort of big categories of terrorism, um, sedition, uh, foreign involvement and those sorts of things. So effectively what's happened is that for anything that Beijing doesn't like, they can now say, well, we will deal with this on our terms rather than Hong Kong being part of the second system, having its own arrangements. Now, under the handover deal, Beijing promised that Hong Kong could keep key civil liberties as well as judicial and legislative autonomy for 50 years. This law goes against that. Um, is China just flagrantly breaking the terms of that deal or has it found uh, you know, some kind of bit of legal sophistry to explain why it isn't? I don't think there's any way that you can say that they aren't breaking the, uh, you know, the joint declaration. And, you know, Dominic Raab uh, in the House of Commons just a few days ago, I think, laid out fairly clearly the ways in which it basically is in direct conflict uh, with China's own basic law for Hong Kong. I mean, for example, China's basic law says that Hong Kong should bring forward its own national security legislation. Now, this has been imposed with no discussion from the outside. Uh, And similarly, the issues about trying cases in Chinese courts. Hong Kong has its own judiciary, and notably, this is a judiciary which involves some British judges sitting, uh, but China's saying that they will handle certain cases that they regard as serious, by which they mean the ones that they see as politically threatening, they'll handle them in in Chinese courts. So I think it's impossible to see this as anything other than a very kind of flagrant breach of the original joint declaration. But I think ultimately China feels that it has uh, the power and the authority to do that and is willing to uh, sort of face the the brickbats of the international community. Nina, China has evolved a security state on a scale never seen before, uh, using all kinds of high-tech means. Uh, I just read in that book, We Have Been Harmonized, which kind of itemizes all the different uh, mechanisms of control they use. We used to be told, back in those sort of happy uh, post-Berlin Wall days, that economic growth needed democracy, and in fact, it, it nourished democracy. Does China's success uh, you know, completely repudiate that? Absolutely. I think the myth that liberal democracy and economic prosperity go hand in hand, as you rightly pointed out, is the kind of belief about the world that the West has had increasingly less so, but, you know, the one that's 
been dominant, at least since the fall of the Berlin Wall for the last 30 years and for the last decade, that's increasingly been repudiated. And this kind of what I call techno-authoritarianism tied in with capitalism, the system you see emerging in China is immensely powerful and it will become even more powerful as the Chinese state harnesses the power of technology like AI to build its surveillance state. And it shows for all of the other countries in the world, including a lot of those rogue and authoritarian states who kind of deny the values of liberal democracy that were championed by the West as, you know, kind of the ultimate destination for all countries that wanted to be economically prosperous. I think China is showing that there is another way in which to harness power in which in which to become an economic superpower. And I think that the technology which is tied into this is really going to become um, a story of the 21st century because you're going to see two different models emerging with the U.S. leading on the West, although you can make an argument that the U.S. is also kind of negated on a lot of the kind of values and ideals of liberal democracy. And then a very different system emerging in China, which countries like Saudi Arabia, Russia, all the kind of classic rogue and authoritarian states will be looking to. So absolutely, China blows that myth out of the water. And I don't think the West had kind of believed that for the last 10 years anyway. And I mean, you know, notoriously in China, they not only kind of delete, you know, explicit references to uh, Tiananmen Square crackdown um, from the Internet, but even, you know, every every kind of code word allusion to the date. Um, should the citizens of Hong Kong expect the same kind of restrictions on on their access to the Internet? It unfortunately looks very much to be going in that direction. Um, China has managed to build on the mainland its very unique internet ecosystem, which is different from the internet ecosystem which we see in the rest of the Western world or the rest of the world, period. And that is because the state has its tenterhooks so deep into all of the big tech and internet and media companies so that it is possible, like you just mentioned, to completely censor the internet ecosystem um, to in the manner in which the state wishes to proceed. And not only that, but it's also used as the infrastructure for surveillance of citizens. And we only need to look at kind of China's social credit rating system and to see what they're doing to the Uyghur population to understand just how dangerous and pernicious that can be. And, uh, and I'm afraid that the freedoms that Hong Kong enjoyed um, is very much going to come under threat from the Chinese government. And I think everything that we've been seeing thus far points in that direction. Because Facebook uh, just suspended demands for data on Facebook and WhatsApp um, by the U- Sorry. Facebook has just sort of suspended its response to demands for Facebook and WhatsApp data by the Hong Kong authorities until it scrutinized the new law. But because, you know, a lot of, like you said, China has its own ecosystem, a lot of our platforms are banned in China anyway. Uh, just, is, is, that, is that sort of serious leverage? In any other, you know, most other countries, if Facebook decided it wasn't going to do something, that would be a, a real kind of mechanism for change. So I think the interesting thing here is that those who are the conduits of 
this new information ecosystem are the ones that hold wield tremendous power. So in the case of mainland China, it is obviously the state who has its tenterhooks deep into these companies that control the whole social media ecosystem. So it's interesting to see Facebook and WhatsApp making a stand in Hong Kong because for them, it's an important human rights issue. It's an important PR issue. But on the other hand, you could make the same argument in the Western information ecosystem about these private companies who have access to private data, who have access to surveillance uh, information, this infrastructure that allows them to go into the most private lives of citizens. So I think it's a bit hypocritical. You can see why China and WhatsApp would make a stand against the Hong Kong authorities or want to stand up to the Chinese authorities. But by the same token, it's that very same infrastructure which gives these private Western companies the same power that the Chinese state holds in its own unique information ecosystem. Arthur, has Britain overreached itself with offering British national overseas passports to, to Hong Kong citizens born before 97? Uh, obviously, China would like to frame this as not only gross interference in its internal affairs, but a kind of, uh, you know, hangover colonialism. Well, the interesting thing about the colonial point is that we are the former colonial power. So in a way, China is correct if they say we're behaving like a former colonial power. I think the fundamental issue here comes back to the issue of the basic law and the joint declaration I think the British government is right to say that China has completely abandoned both the principles and and the sort of letter of that agreement. And therefore, the responsibilities that Britain had in 1997 and the basis on which the handover was made have changed significantly. And I think it's, it's one could accuse Britain of taking a colonialist attitude. But if one wants to be a bit more generous, I think you could adequately describe it as recognizing a responsibility to a specific part of the world where we have a long history and trying to exercise that responsibility with regard to the rights of those people. And I think it's something that we can actually be proud of um, in terms of the, as a government policy. And and finally, I mean, China, as we can see from, I mean, the, the surveillance, the, the appalling treatment of the Uyghurs, um, doesn't really seem to um, to care that much about the opinions of uh, of, of its international critics, um, and of course it has a lot of supporters uh, in the UN, particularly um, not just other kind of authoritarian regimes, but also many African countries which have a lot of kind of business ties to China. So, is there really much that the UK can do? I mean, beyond these passports is there any sort of pressure that it can exert or is basically china just going to do what china wants to do well i think let's come back to the question of huawei and and other sort of you know major sort of business opportunities china sees britain as an important market obviously it's not the world's biggest market but it is an important one and it's one that sets a certain amount of a sort of global standard so for example if, as a member of the Five Eyes Alliance, uh, Britain allowed Huawei in, into our telecommunications network, that would send quite a strong message to the likes of Australia, New Zealand and Canada, who are all under pressure to go in a similar direction. So, yes, Britain on its own is not going to make Xi Jinping change his policies. 
or suddenly embrace democracy. Far from it. But I think equally, if we tell ourselves we can't make any difference, then we risk doing what has actually been happening for the past few years, where Britain seems to accommodate almost all of China's needs and requirements, actually to the detriment of our own society and our own interests. Finally, according to reports in the Observer, the government is considering a radical plan to give every adult in the country five hundred pound and every child two hundred and fifty pounds in vouchers to spend in sectors of the economy worst hit by the COVID crisis. The proposals drawn up by the Resolution Foundation think tank are aimed at kickstarting economic recovery by triggering a highly targeted surge in spending. Under the plans, vouchers could only be spent in certain sectors such as hospitality and face-to-face retail, as opposed to online. Nina, schemes similar to this one have been successfully introduced in China, Taiwan, Malta. Um, Do you think it could work here in the UK? Yeah, I absolutely do think so. I mean, as soon as lockdown started loosening up, we saw the kind of queues of people waiting outside stores, waiting to get, you know, their shopping fix. If you look at the economy and how much it relies on consumer spending, that is absolutely what the economy needs, an injection of kind of cash in order for people to go to the stores and buy things. I mean, the funny thing is when we were talking about, you know, when we were in the Eurozone crisis and the financial crisis um, not too many years ago, we were talking about the moment when we would get helicopter money from the government. And in COVID, that is essentially what the government has been giving us, uh, not only through furlough, but also through schemes like this. And what's the logic, can you just explain briefly, uh, behind a voucher that, that, that has to be spent rather than just a kind of cash uh, payment? Well, if you give someone cash, they might not spend it in the shops. They might put it in their investments. They might squirrel it away. The entire purpose is that you want them to go and spend it in the stores. Um, and, of course, many, or many of those businesses, many of those shops, you know, they need that cash injection. They need that consumer spending because if they don't have that kind of bumper summer, especially those businesses who don't do online retail, then, you know, they may fold by the fall. So the, the potential devastation to the British economy could be huge. You, you, you want them to have the voucher to spend in store rather than giving them cash that they they could use for something else. And a really interesting thing about furlough, for example, is that given that many people were just given cash and their outgoings were considerably smaller because they can spend them in stores or pubs or on holidays, we saw during the lockdown massive amounts of debt being paid off, credit card debt. So you don't want that. You want them to go spend in shops. And Arthur, the spending the vouchers would provide this incentive, but would it be merely short-term relief for retailers, or is the idea to get people used to spending again uh, in the long term, so it's kind of like jolting them back into the habit? Well, I suppose the question ultimately will be that for plenty of people, once the £500 has been spent, they go back to the situation they're already in, you know, finding themselves with with very little money. I mean, I'm instinctively a bit suspicious of a scheme like this, which is universal, because there are some people, myself included, who haven't really been much affected economically by the by the virus. And I'm not sure that I need 500 quid to go and blow in the pub, although, you know, it might be fun if that did come my way. Well, I am now going to ask you all, what would you buy with your 500 pound voucher, whether or not you need it? Uh, Nina, I'll start, I'll start with you. Where would you... Uh... Where would you be helping the economy? 
<laughs> and yourself. Uh, so I probably um, clothes for my baby and wine. Uh, Peter, what about you? Where do you spend your grant? Uh, on surviving. Um, I'll have Arthur's as well if he doesn't need it. <laughs> I, um, I'm in that small category, director of a limited company, employed by that limited company, no other employees, um, none of the uh, government help except the bounce-back loans that came latterly uh, applied to me, uh, and therefore my two choices have been either close the company down uh, entirely and, and just get um, universal credit, uh, or, or try and survive in the hope that we can start building it back again. So I've gone for the latter. Uh, but what it means is the only thing that I've got from the government out of this is a £9,000 bounce-back loan, which is a loan. So it's got to be paid back at some point. Um, yes, it's helped keep going, um, but it's having a significant impact. So it'll go on living. Uh, and finally, Arthur, if you're not giving your £500 to Peter <laughs> uh, and not blowing it all down the pub, uh, where would you spend it? Well, you know, I, the pub was my plan. I mean, no, seriously, I think uh, in in rural areas, I, I live in a village in the in the countryside. Uh, pubs are actually an important part of a kind of social fabric and social service. And a lot of pubs really struggle to survive, and they've obviously have really struggled uh, during the lockdown. Although they've been very creative in my village, the pub turned into a kind of food delivery service. So I might spend it in the pub, but perhaps not all in one night. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. Uh, the pubs are open, but what else are our panellists doing to take their minds off fears of a second wave, recession, and everything else that keeps you up at night? Uh, Peter, what's your diversion of choice? Um, unfortunately enough to live in Twickenham. Uh, in, in the borough of Richmond and Montem, so lots and lots of parks and open spaces. Um, I tend to uh, just go for a walk or to sit in the park or whatever, uh, so I'll continue doing that. Arthur, what's uh, what's your distraction at the moment? Well, the the big excitement uh, is the the summer holidays uh, for school children are now on us, which is seems a bit bizarre because they've all been at home uh, anyway uh, for the for the past few weeks. But I'm trying to come up with amusing. Uh, COVID-friendly things that I might do with the kids over the summer. And that often involves things in, uh, involving small boats and getting very wet, so canoeing and other exciting activities like that. This is, this is very outdoorsy. Nina, can you, can you restore us to our couch potato norm with, uh, uh, yeah. with some kind of home entertainment? Yes, that was exactly what I was actually going to say. I've escaped into the realms of a fantasy extravaganza um, uncovering the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I binge watched. And then I also subsequently went on to binge watch all three films of The Hobbit. And you'll be excited to know that uh, the CGI hasn't aged as badly as I thought it might have done. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to our panel, Peter Kirkham. Thank you. Nina Schick. Thank you. And Arthur Snell. Thanks. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you back us, you'll get a shout-out on the show. And here are some names now. Hello, and many thanks from me to Rosie Wilkinson, David Turnbull, Ian Chalvers, and Christine McLaughlin. 
Hi, this is Arthur, and my thanks to Sue Harvey, Keith, just Keith, Nikki Marum, and Tim Pinder. And finally, thanks for me to Patrick Walsh, Alex Rushforth, Ed Churchman, and Alan Yates. Take care, and see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Arthur Snell and Nina Shake. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison, and the assistant producer is Jacob Archibald. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.